0: You're listening to a devotion by Christ Baptist Church. For more resources, visit our website at ChristBaptist.org. Well, we pick up today where we left off yesterday, and that is looking at J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. It may not surprise you that in a book on knowing God, one of the things that Packer does is he spends a little bit of time thinking through various aspects of the Ten Commandments. And specifically, the one that I want to highlight today is his pausing and considering the Second Commandment. The Second Commandment, if uh, if you don't recall it, is that you shall not make any graven image, uh, any carved image, that is to say, any idol of anything that is in heaven above or the earth below, and you shall not bow down to any such image. Well, Packer, on this the second commandment has essentially two ways of getting at this. There's the negative way and the positive way. And so let's look at each of those in turn. Packer begins by pointing out the negative side. and here he has two subpoints. He says, first, um, the reason for this commandment is to make sure that God is not uh, dishonored and His glory is not obscured. Sounds strange to say, but to describe this and talk about this commandment in this way is uh, actually almost a positive side to the negative side, if that makes sense. In other words, Packer leaves aside the obvious part of this, which is to say uh, idolatry and false gods and false worship and so forth um, is not real worship at all, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He doesn't actually comment on that side of it, on paganism, if you will. Instead, he emphasizes the creation of images within the worship of God, and that's where he sees this as applying not only in Israel's day, but also in our own day. In other words, Packer has something to say about the creation of images that are intended to represent God, even in the context of understanding who God is and worshiping him and him alone. So what is Packer's problem, if you will? What is it that he struggles with in terms of the creation of paintings or images of some kind of God? His problem is that these images inevitably conceal most, he says, if not all of God's nature and being. And that's what leads him to his second point, which is that images mislead us by conveying false ideas about God. Now, Packer goes on to make the slightly controversial claim that, in his own words, imagining God in our heads can be just as real a breach of the second commandment as imagining him by the work of our hands. So he is connecting there two things. It's not just that we shouldn't create an image and say that that image helps me worship God. It's also that we shouldn't make efforts to imagine what God looks like or imagine images of God in our own head. And when he talks about imagining what God might look like in our own heads, he's not necessarily talking about sort of the classic tale of of the old man sitting on a mountain with a long beard and so forth. No, he's talking about Christians who from time to time will say, well, I like to think of God as, and then they carry on as grammar, I like to think of God like and they fill in the blank. And usually when they when when that sort of statement is made, says Packer, then people are beginning to fill the, the, the concept, the word, the idea of God with their own ideas, with their own opinions, with their own preferences and likes and so forth. And Packer's point is that the Bible does not free you to think of God in ways that you like or that you prefer. The Bible frees you to think about God in the ways that he reveals. It actually guides you and helps you understand who God is. Now, having made these sort of negative points, no images, um, you know, uh, no imagining in your mind what you like, how you like to think of God and so forth, not this, these, he says these, this is part of what the second commandment uh, um, dissuades us from. He then moves on, does Packer, to the positive side. He says the second commandment is Positively speaking, it is a summons to recognize God's transcendence, and as such, it is a summons to humble ourselves. It is a summons to, as he goes on to explain, it is a summons, the second commandment to say, do not create likenesses or images of anything in the way of thinking that that will help your worship. And and that command moves us, says Packer, to... Therefore, listen all the more carefully to what God has to say in his word, not to what we might like to think, or we might like to create, or we might like to suppose. It is a summons to submit to the word of God. It is a summons to humble ourselves in the sense that we must learn from God rather than assert our own opinions as if they were fact. And it is a summons to humble ourselves, to let God reveal what he is like, rather than inferring what we wish. After all, as uh, Packer reminds us, in Isaiah 55, we read, God speaking, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts." Packer also reminds us of Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Packer draws on other passages of scripture, but those two, I think, give a flavor of the, kind of, uh, the, the way in which he is thinking about God in relation to the second commandment. Well, later on, Packer says about the person who is preoccupied with images of God, he says such a person has, quote, not yet learned to love and attend to God's word. As I read that, or reread that, as I was going through his book again, I remembered a conversation that took place while I was at seminary many, many moons ago, in which there was a disagreement between the professor and one of the students. And uh, one of the students, the professor had made the comment that he did not believe that any images of God or of Jesus or of the Holy Spirit should be used in Christian worship. And what, the st- several students disagreed with this and they said, that's, you know, that's not the case and we, there's nothing wrong as long as we understand that these images are not God himself and these images are only there to help us and so forth. And, uh, and so somebody finally, this one particular student, finally asked me, he said, well, what do you think about the Jesus film? And of course, this was, I think from the student's perspective, considered the coup de gras, this was it, the final argument that would persuade him because, after all, surely who could argue with the success of the Jesus film that has been shown to, I don't know how many people, a lot of people, all around the world, and has been used to bring people to faith in Christ. So. He asked him, so surely you're not saying that the Jesus film, you know, is something that we shouldn't be using, to which the professor's response was that he, in fact, did think that it was wrong that the Jesus film should portray Jesus and provide, therefore, an image of Jesus, because he included actors in this and acting in that. And and of course, the response, as you might expect, was, well, but look at all the good it's done. You can't surely argue against the Thousands, perhaps tens or hundreds of thousands of people who've come to faith after watching the Jesus film. To which the professor's uh, point was, uh, let's not forget uh, how often God blesses even our fallen and wayward efforts. It was a very interesting conversation in which he said, so often, and he gave some examples, but he said, so often. It is very interesting that we are convinced that what we are doing is exactly right and pure and wonderful and just and true and all the rest of it, when in fact we are not properly obeying the word of God. And yet even so, in God's deep mercy, he continues to work through even our sinful efforts. After all, if he never worked through our sinful efforts, he could never work through us. Because even while the dominion of sin is over us, the presence of sin can still—it does still remain in us. There is still a wrestling. There is still a, a falling to temptation. There, there is still sanctification that needs to happen as we move ever closer to the sinless perfection in the new creation. But in all of this, I think it was interesting that the professor drew out the fact that <clears throat> we cannot make the, the one-to-one connection between we have done X and X is successful, therefore... X is good. Uh, that, in his mind, is faulty theological thinking. So indeed, as, and as part of this conversation, uh, as it drew to a close because we needed to move on in the class, the professor simply asked one last question. He said, what strikes you about the descriptions of Jesus in the Gospels, in all four Gospels? And the students who had been arguing with him said, well, I don't know, because there are no descriptions of Jesus in the Gospels. And he said, exactly. There is no effort on the part of the Gospel writers to tell us anything about what Jesus looked like. And he said that follows very much in line with the Second Commandment. Well, if I could offer just a personal note here, you may be wondering, well, what does David think about all this? Well, I'm not sure what David thinks about all this really matters a great deal. But if you're wondering... Um, I'll tell you, if you're not wondering, you can skip ahead or just press stop. But uh, what do I think about all this? Well, let me get at this question uh, through an experience that I had a number of years ago. You may recall Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. Um, I would imagine many of you have probably seen that. A lot of Christians saw it and so forth. And I was asked constantly, have you seen it? And I would say, no, I haven't seen it. And eventually somebody said, well, why haven't you seen this yet? This is a wonderful movie. And I said, I've, I've never seen it and I, I don't plan to see it. And in part, the reason I, and I still haven't seen it, and the reason I've never seen this movie in part is because I still wrestle with the idea that I do wonder if we have broken the second commandment by portraying Jesus on film, um, by saying essentially, here is an image. Here is somebody who looks like what we think Jesus should look like. And so often, as you know, I remember myself growing up in the church, what is it you see as the image of Jesus? Well, those images we see of Jesus are very much informed by a 1960s hippie. Um, he has hair that is just below his shoulders or right at his shoulders. Um, you know, he has brown hair instead of black hair. He has brown eyes instead of darker brown eyes or who knows what he might have had. I mean, it is, there is the creation of a particular image of what we think Jesus would look like, let alone what he sounded like, the inflection of his voice, The manners that the expressions he had, you know, all of these sorts of things are assumed and then imposed. And it seems to me um, at least problematic. Also, um, as I thought through this issue of of should I go see this movie or not, to recall Packer's point that images we create often conceal more than they reveal, um, it did occur to me, I wasn't thinking about Packer at the time, but it did occur to me that what is on the screen, that is to say, the, uh, the visual as well as the auditory as well as the whole just the way it's all done is, very, is a very powerful experience that portrays a singular interpretation of who Jesus is and what he was like. And when I say powerful, I mean the influence of the, the, the video media can be very strong um, as, as is, is evidenced here. Some of you may be listening to this in just on the audio format, and if you're listening to the audio format and you've never seen me, you have no idea what I look like. Uh, others of you uh, may be on the audio format because you know what I look like and you don't want to have to see me. Um, some of you, you know, you see me every every Sunday. But the, the point is that um, it's, it's th- the audio format conveys less than the video format. There's extra information, extra detail, extra judgments that are made and so forth as we expand this. And the power of video is quite strong. It certainly is for me at any rate. Um, so I, didn't, I decided I didn't want to watch that movie because that would actually inform my interpretation of the Gospels. Uh, and I wasn't sure I wanted Mel Gibson or Hollywood to be informing my interpretation of the Gospels because I had seen a very strong and powerful portrayal of, who he thought Jesus is or should be. <clears throat> so, that's merely my own sidelight on this. Um, I don't you know, protest the uh, the use of the Jesus film. I don't protest the Passion of Christ or anything like that. Uh, but I think everyone should, as Packer encourages people to, everyone should be thinking about these things. It's interesting. He wrote those uh, comments that he made twenty years, nineteen seventy three. Twenty years later. He wrote a revised edition of Knowing God in 1993, and uh, in the section that I'm talking about here, he actually added a couple of pages in which he responded to what he said were a steady stream of letters and calls and comments to him about how much people disagreed with his take on the Second Commandment and its application, and so he provided three things that he thought were worthwhile continuing to think about, even while he affirmed The use of arts, and even while he affirmed the human imagination, and even while he affirmed uh, so many things, he still has his own response. And what that response is, I will let you discover uh, when you go and read the book. Well, final word on Packer's knowing God. Towards the end of the book, Packer turns his attention to grace. And he says, the primary purpose of grace is to restore our relationship with God by forgiving our sins as we trust in Jesus and he renews our nature. Um, And he renews our nature, why? Well, he renews our nature so that, for several reasons. One, so that we may love more as he loves and less, according to the way that we prefer to love. He renews us so that we might trust in him, come what may. He renews us so that we might delight in what he delights in and not what the presence of sin would beg us to delight in. He renews us so that we might set our hope on what is sure and certain, as he gives it, and not what is passing, ephemeral, and fleeting. And he renews us so that we might obey all his commands, and so delight in the life that he gives. And this work of grace, says Packer, will lead us into an ever deeper knowledge of God, an ever closer fellowship with him. So instead of examining and looking at and and, and emphasizing, although I've emphasized it here, uh, the, the second commandment and all that, that's just a part of his book. Where Packer ends up is, how is it that God himself is working in us so that we might know him? And those are some of the ways in which he's doing that. So, in short, as we bring this uh, examination of Packer's book uh, to a close, in short, Packer's point is grace is God drawing us sinners closer and closer to himself. That's where he's getting at with this book. That's what he's exploring in so many ways is grace, God's grace. God is working to draw us sinners closer and closer to himself. And quite frankly, my question is, what more could we want?